Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host Crawford Gribben and today my guest is Dirk Jonkind. Dirk is a Senior Research Fellow in New Testament Text and Language at Tyndale House at the University of Cambridge and we're going to be talking to Dirk today about his new edition of the Greek New Testament. It's just been published by Cambridge University Press and Crossway. Dirk, congratulations on the edition and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Before we begin talking about the edition itself, could you tell us about yourself? Oh, well, I am a Dutchman uh, lost in the UK. Moved here 20 years ago after a 10-year career in flower growing in the Netherlands. I came here to study, to Cambridge, but never been able to get away. And do you enjoy living in the UK? Yeah, very much so. There's a there's a lot of space here. There's a a lot of opportunity to to be yourself, and it's less crowded than the Netherlands. <laughs> Perhaps not so many cigars. Probably, but I don't miss those. <laughs> okay, well let's let's talk about the Greek New Testament, which you have edited, and it's just been published by Crossway and Cambridge University Press. Uh, the copy that that I'm looking at today is beautiful. It is a beautiful book. It's bound in uh, French Morocco leather. It's elegantly laid out on the page. Its typography is so clear. Uh, It's a really extraordinary achievement. So congratulations. Thank you. What was the background to your decision to begin work on this back, I think, about 2005? Yeah, we started thinking about potentially doing a Greek New Testament here at Tyndale House, actually before I was even on staff. Uh, I had a conversation with uh, Pete Williams, who at that time was not on staff either, and we shared the sort of uh, kind of dreams we had and specific concerns about textual criticism, about developments that were happening, and also about kind of a philosophy of doing textual criticism, which would be um, perhaps not determined, but at least be informed by a strong sense of respect for history and respect for the text. So those were very early discussions then. Pete Williams happened to become warden, now principal of Tyndale House. Um, I became a member of staff and we basically said, well, why don't we actually try it? So for for years, I was basically uh, working on my own. And then after seven years, more and more people joined to push the project over the finish line. And it has been a wonderful, rich process, which which ended up in working with a great team of people. 
Now, as you began this project back in 2005, what were the what were the stimuli for this? Why weren't you happy with the available editions? Perhaps our uh, our main motivation was not so much that we were not happy with existing editions, but there was a sense in which we thought if the work on the Greek New Testament is concentrated within one institution, within one dominant philosophy, then there is a risk to the church at large, or perhaps also um, uh, neglect of responsibility, if the work is just being handed over. So there was for us a strong sense of we want to have a confessional institution working on the text. It is good to have a text available there where the, the copyright is, is held by, uh, by the church or church-related organizations um, themselves and which also um, operates on perhaps a more down-to-earth approach to textual criticism than that which was quite popular in sort of the 1990s and beginning of the 2000s. And that was an approach that started to emphasize the role of the copyist in its editorial aspect. So the copyist became not just somebody who uh, transported the letters from one page to another page, but the copyist became a reader who was responding to the text, who was happy to change the wording of a text, was happy to uh, change the message of the text where needed. And that line of thinking made us decisively uncomfortable. Because in the end, a copyist is a copyist. And the work we had been doing on Greek manuscripts in various studies did not demonstrate that a scribe was also an editor, even though a scribe made, made many errors in the copying process. But it just shows that, showed at least to me, that a scribe, the scribe's intention was to copy the text, not to edit the text. And based on that sort of down-to-earth principle, we thought that um, it would be good to apply that principle to the whole of the Greek New Testament and see where we end up. Now, in, in the Academy, we are used to using the small blue-covered edition and the red-covered edition, uh, which come out of Germany. Within the church... Uh, we often hear a lot of discussion about received text traditions or the Byzantine text tradition or traditions. Why did you choose to do something distinct from each of these? Um, when it comes to uh, the Byzantine tradition or the received text or in its Latin uh, name Textus Receptus, um, it was for us fairly easy 
why we would not follow the Byzantine text or the Textus Receptus. Uh, the Textus Receptus is a, a view on the text of the New Testament, which basically said that the text that is in print at the days of the Reformation is the text that is intended by God for the church. And therefore, the only thing we need to do is to uh, accept the text that was there at the Reformation. I have slightly difficulties with the theology behind it, because it almost puts a, a level of kind of inspirational purity to the uh, decisions and the uh, production process that lies behind the Textus Receptus. And I don't see any sort of supernatural confirmation in the history of the church that would convince me or would even indicate to me that something special happened in the 16th century when it comes to the uh, production of a Greek New Testament which was unparalleled in the sort of 1400 years before that. So the theological argument behind the Textus Receptus is something we, I do not accept. Then it comes to the Byzantine text, which is basically accepting the uh, text of the Greek Orthodox Church as it was uh, in use during the Middle Ages. The Byzantine text shows obvious signs of, um, of textual updating. So if you compare the uh, Gospel of Luke with the Gospel of Matthew, then quite often you see where Matthew has the full citation of the Old Testament, um, Luke quite often has a curtailed citation. I'm thinking here of the temptation of Jesus in the desert. Now, the Byzantine text will have added the full citation as found in Matthew to the text of Luke, so that the text reads identical, even though it is not particularly in line with how, how Luke deals in general with the Old Testament. So, accepting the Byzantine text wholesale means accepting a text where it is obvious that though correct in many verses, in many chapters, it is still a text that contains signs of updated and of copying errors. So that would be the reason against the Byzantine text. And that leaves us with what is perhaps an inelegant solution, that the best way of going about reproducing the uh, original text, the text as closest as possible to the original words, is going on a variant by variant basis, where you work your way faithfully through chapter by chapter, variant by variant, and in each case, um, sort of try to determine to the best of our abilities, what is the original wording in this variant? How can I explain um, the genesis of the variant, and how can I uh, therefore uh, reconstruct the original text? 
Now, in the introduction to the Greek New Testament, uh, you explain that your starting point was a, a, a rather forgotten 19th century edition prepared by Samuel Predo Tregellis, whose work had influence on Westcott and Hort in 1881 and from thence on into many of the standard 20th century English language Bible translations. Who was Tregellis and why does his work matter so much for you? Tregellis was was an interesting uh, figure. So he he was very much involved in the genesis of the uh, Plymouth Brethren movement in the 1840s. In the, he was involved in the big split that happened between uh, you know, Derby and the uh, subsequent Open Brethren. Um, Tregellis lived in Plymouth um, at that time. Um, Tregellis is someone who had a very high view of biblical inspiration. So he believed in plenary inspiration. He believed that every word of scripture was inspired in the same way as the two tablets that Moses received uh, out of the hand of God himself. So we were inscribed by the very finger of God. Um, so Tregellis had a very high view of the inspiration of Scripture. And that was for him the reason to put all his effort in finding what those words actually are, because every word matters. Hmm. Um, and it is that sort of attitude which I think is a very good, a very Christian motivation for doing textual criticism. And why we um, started with Tregellis is that we know that in the Christian church there, there are areas where people are suspicious of doing this work. Now, how can people determine what the word of God is? And in order to allay some of those fears and some of that uncertainty, perhaps even criticism, we thought, well, let's start with a source where most people won't have any objections to. Oh, Tregellis is, in that sense, an orthodox starting point for doing textual criticism of the New Testament. The other advantage is Tregellis was the, the first uh, Anglo-Saxon who produced a critical Greek New Testament. Hmm. So in that sense, he stands at the beginning of a long tradition of scholarship. And as you said, Westcott and Hort uh, were in close contact with Tregellis. Um, actually, Tregellis died before his final installment of his work, um, Book of Revelation, um, was seen through press, and Hort took it upon himself to make sure that Tregellis' edition was completed. Mm -hmm. And if you read some of the uh, letters of consolation that Hort wrote to the widow of Tregellis, there's a deep sense of respect. 
Fascinating. Well, as as you as you began with Trigellus, you, you you and the editorial team very quickly decided to, to to do a more radical revision of Trigellus than you might first have anticipated, and so you've had to think quite carefully about your own canons of textual criticism. How did you approach that question? Uh, you tell us in the introduction that to ensure your work is as early as possible. You insist that every text be attested by two or more sources. Is that an unusual procedure in New Testament text criticism? I think it, um, this particular uh, rule is not so much a canon, but it was a constant reminder that it is easy to get carried away by by one's own brilliant theories and one's own uh, very astute lines of reasoning, etc. And if there's one thing I am reasonably convinced about is that we all need checks and balances because our our mind can, can run circles around the best intentions we have. So we kept that as a rule of thought, that every uh, reading is normally um, by two manuscripts, and one of them is uh, from before the 5th century. I am not absolutely sure if in each and every case we have followed that rule. I think we have, but there may have been one or two cases where the, uh, the actual reason not to print the earliest Tested text was very uh, was very strong. But another way of uh, summarizing this rule is we keep on asking ourselves: Do we have a good reason not to print the earliest attested text? Sometimes there can be a very good reason, um, but it is not the case that we expect that the original text has been preserved only in manuscripts from the year 1300 or 1400 or 1500. There is a sense that, though it is possible that later manuscripts contain the original wording over against early manuscripts, so it is possible, it is more likely that the earlier manuscripts are more likely to contain the original wording. So that is roughly the balance when it comes to uh, external evidence. So external evidence, the uh, evidence provided by manuscripts. But then quite often we will have uh, a variant unit in which the two or three alternatives are all attested by equally ancient witnesses. What do we do in those cases? we need some extra help. And our rule of thumb was basically this. Can we explain the variants as a result of things that tend to go wrong in the normal process of copying? So can we explain the variant as accidental errors? Now, accidental errors can be very complicated. 
simply because copying is a cognitive process. And we have learned sufficient about cognitive processes from, from psychology and linguistics and all that, that we know that things can go wrong in very complicated ways. But as soon as we have a scribal copying explanation for a variant, that is sufficient for us because it is most likely that a variant does not come into existence because the scribe wanted to make a change, but simply as a result of things that can go wrong when you copy. So how did you apply those principles to famous, controversially difficult passages like the ending of Mark or perhaps the pericope about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8? <coughs> Um, now, editing a Greek New Testament um, is most of the time working with very minute variants. You mentioned some of the very big ones, um, and the big ones have been known for, uh, for many centuries. But many of the small variants, um, well, they provide the majority of the work you have to do as an editor. So you will find the results of our approach most starkly in all the tiny variants throughout. And collectively, they make sort of a good difference between the Tyndall House text and other texts. When it comes to those very big variants, there we are in special territory. So I don't think we have brought to bear many new arguments when it comes to uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery in John 8 uh, or to the ending of Mark. When it comes to the ending of Mark, uh, we refrained from uh, putting brackets around the long ending of Mark or relegating it to a footnote. What we did in the case of Mark 16 is to put a little note in the main text that translates as now in some of the uh, most ancient manuscripts. The gospel finishes here, but in many others also the following is contained. And then we follow with the long ending of Mark. And that is because in the end there are only two Greek manuscripts that omit the long ending. Hmm. So, in that sense, when, when you look at kind of the whole of the manuscript tradition, yes, to, to exclude that passage on the basis of two manuscripts, you must have good arguments. I think there are very strong arguments against the long ending of Mark. I mean, not the least, because in the early 4th centuries, the church was debating this issue already. Hmm. So it, it, it's one of the oldest known textual variants and goes back a very long time. Um, but still, the, the external evidence is not you know, decisive or overwhelming on its own. When it comes to the story of the woman caught in adultery, the external evidence is much clearer. It is not found in most of the manuscripts from before the 7th, 8th century, and then it starts uh, to be found quite rapidly 
almost universally, but always with some exceptions in the medieval Greek manuscript, that there are places that leave it out. Um, so there the external evidence is much clearer. And that is why we put the story of the woman caught in adultery in the footnote, because as far as I can see, it is not part of what the uh, of what John originally wrote in his gospel. Now he, he finishes his gospel, of course, with that sort of intriguing remark, saying that uh, now there are many other things that Jesus has done. If all of them were uh, written down, the world would not be able to contain all the books. Whether or not that was an invitation to actually, no, add this story to the gospel, hmm. because it was almost a gospel, or was almost a story in search for for a hope. Hmm. Um, whether or not that was the reason, I'm not completely sure. But the story in itself is clearly old. Uh, the story rings very much true, or the resonates very strongly with how you get to know Jesus from the regular Gospels. So for me, the question whether or not something is historical or whether or not it is part of John's Gospel are two different questions. Now, I can answer the question quite confidently. It was not part of John's Gospel from the beginning, not for the first uh, centuries. So or so, whether or not it is historical or not, that is a completely different mm, question. Of course, I am not as clear on that one. Well, Dirk, you've mentioned a couple of really big text critical difficulties there: John eight, Mark sixteen. But one of the charming uh, aspects of your edition is the way in which it focuses upon very small textual differences, including differences of spelling. Could you talk us through how you thought about this issue and why you decided to allow for variation in spelling? Yes, um, there are a couple of reasons why I, uh, why we paid attention to spelling, but also why we allowed um, inconsistencies there. And the first thing is this. Everyone who has worked with manuscripts knows that our notion of consistency is not shared in textual tradition. So there, there is a sense in which we prize consistency higher than the era from which most of our evidence comes. Mm. So that was for me a timely reminder that to impose consistency may be the same as to impose our modern norms on, on things that come from us from antiquity. Um, I think that is always a good thing to, uh, to be reminded of. But then spelling issues can actually make a real difference. And it is not a big difference, but it is a difference um, in the way things are packaged. And one of my favorite examples is found in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, where 
Paul has just given a whole vice list of, uh, of uh, adulterers, thieves, drunkards, etc. And then he continues in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And you were these things. So you were those, uh, those thieves, etc. And then he continues with, but you have been washed, but you have been sanctified, but you have been justified. Now, this is a literal translation, and the Greek has indeed that repeated word, but, three times. Now, the word but in Greek can be written in two ways, as alla, two syllables, or just one syllable, al. And then the final alpha is sort of dropped. And the final alpha is dropped when the next word starts with a vowel. At least, that is the rule that we thought was there. <laughs> Greek manuscripts don't know that rule as such. I mean, quite often they follow it, but there are also passages where they blatantly ignore it. And this is one of the examples where not just one manuscript, but many manuscripts ignore the rule. So they write the full two-syllable and properly accented Allah before, but you have been washed, but you have been sanctified, but you have been justified. And each of the three verbs starts with a vowel. By having the full length Allah rather than the shortened form, um, it gets a little bit more oomph, the word. Even when you sort of translate it in English, the repeated word but draws some focus on it by its repetition. And that is, in the Greek spelling, indicated by going against the rule and just write out the word in full. Now, does it make a difference in your exegesis of this particular verse? Not really, but it is still part of the packaging and it is still part of how you uh, give more focus to particular words. So that is one of the examples where I could understand the difference. But what about all those examples where I don't understand the difference? Then the question is, should I, as an editor, present a text that is limited by my understanding, or should I provide the best possible reconstruction of the oldest evidence you can find? And for me, it is clearly the latter. So the, the text, also in its spelling peculiarities, should not be limited by my understanding, but it should help others to ask questions that nobody asked before. And that is the sort of worth of making a new edition. Hmm. Now, th th there's a lot of fun in the way you approach the spelling issue, isn't there? But perhaps one of the, one of the most striking differences between this edition and the other editions that are available is your decision to reorganise the order of the canon. What did you decide to do, and why did you decide to do it? Um, well, I think even the shape of your question <laughs> sort of uh, is a bias, isn't it? 
first of all, the question was asked basically by Tregellus already. So Tregellus has, after Acts, um, now the Catholic epistles, so James, Peter, John, and Jude. And then after Jude, continues with Romans. So that's Tregellus in the 1850s. Westcott and Hort took over that same order. So Westcott and Hort also have the order as we have it in uh, the Tyndall House edition. And it is actually the order that became standard in sort of Greek manuscripts. Um, very early on, we don't have manuscripts that contain a variety of books. So from the 4th century, you get our first complete uh, Greek New Testaments. And there the order is certainly not consistent at all. But later on, we see that Acts is always combined with the Catholic epistles. So from Acts, you get uh, you move to, to James. Um, I am not sure if it means something. But because we wanted to reflect the Greek tradition, we thought, well, we'll stick with the Greek order of books. What we have in our English translation is not the Greek, but the Latin order hmm. of books. So when the, uh, the Greek New Testament became a printed book in the uh, 16th century, uh, the Greek functioned mainly to correct the Latin, because that was the Bible of choice. Um, and in that process, the order of the Latin books was maintained rather than the order of the Greek books. Again, um, I don't want to limit the uh, edition by my understanding. It may mean something, it may not mean anything, but there is something elegant about... Uh, having the Catholic epistles uh, immediately after Acts. Because the first half of Acts uh, deals with James and Peter and, and John, and the second half of Acts with Paul. Hmm. And perhaps that order is reflected in the way how the, how the letters follow. Hmm. That's um, a fascinating observation. As you, as you think about the edition uh, as a whole, in terms of orthography, canonical order, um, text critical canons, etc., what kind of impact do you hope it will make in scholarship and perhaps even in the church? Um, I hope that the biggest impact will be on the church, frankly. Um, my, our hope with this edition was that we wanted not so much produce a critical edition of the Greek New Testament. I mean, it is a critical edition, but that's not sort of our primary goal. Our primary goal was to produce a Greek New Testament that feels and functions like a Bible rather than a critical edition. Mm. So therefore, I hope that the edition very much feels like a Bible. That is why we have Bible publishers um, it is something that I hope that uh, people will read, not so much in order to become aware of all sorts of textual variants, but because they want to interact with the text, because they want to read the New Testament in Greek. So 
our main goal was not so much to produce a tool for textual criticism as well as a very good text that can be used to study the New Testament. At the same time, by doing what we are doing, we are raising questions. And I expect that for, for years to come, uh, some of those questions will play a role in discussions about the role of the editor, in discussions about um, paragraphing, about structuring the text, about um, the canons of textual criticism, what sort of rules do we use to decide between variants. And I think in all those areas, we make substantial contributions. Well, Dirk, it's a fascinating project. It's a huge step forward in presenting us with a New Testament that looks and feels genuinely antique. And it's really striking to see the differences between this edition and lots of the other editions that are available today. This feels uh, so much more authentic in a way and, uh, that, 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 that than uh, some others. Before we wind up, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? I've, I've read some work by you recently about Tregellis. You've got a book forthcoming with Crossway as an introduction to this edition. What else is going on in your scholarly world at the moment? My main project is together with a, with a, a colleague, um, a postdoc, Elijah Hickson, we are writing a, an explanation of the textual choices we have made. Hmm. So it functions a little bit like a textual commentary on a selection of variants. Um, many people may know the textual commentary on the Greek New Testament that was produced by Bruce Metzger. Mm -hmm. so in two years' time, that textual commentary will be half a century old. Hmm. And we thought as a, um, as a matter of scholarly accountability, we will produce this uh, textual commentary so that people will actually know why we did what uh, we have done. And because we made good notes during the whole process of, uh, of preparing the Tindo House edition, we hope to have it published within a matter of years, perhaps three at the most. But, but we, we are already in Luke, you not know, having started Matthew. So making, we're making good progress. That sounds great. That sounds like a really useful project. In the meantime, Dirk, thanks very much for sharing your work with us today, for coming on to the show and talking about this new edition of the Greek New Testament, just published by Cambridge University Press and Crossway. And thanks for coming on to the show to talk about it. Thanks for your time and take care. It's absolutely the thing I love doing best. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Mm -hmm.